Good morning. Uh, my name is Jason Tyrell. I'm one of the elders here at Joy. I have the privilege of uh, leading us in our time in the Word this morning. It is good that our God is the living God, the eternal King, and a gracious Heavenly Father. That's a wonderful combination. And we are the recipients of His mercy. This morning we continue our series through the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at an entire chapter, kind of, uh, this morning. I'm going to move this because I can't see Larry's face. Uh, we are, we're not really going to hit on uh, verses 24 to 28 this morning. We are going to read them, uh, but I will pick up with them, Lord willing, next week. Uh, this chapter, chapter 14 of Acts, covers the final part of Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, the gospel message, as the book of Acts is revealing to us time and time again, is a message that saves and sanctifies. It is a message for all people, not just one ethnic group. It is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It is also a message that smells like death to some. The gospel of grace, which we celebrate, we sing and celebrate the gospel of grace, it enrages some people. And over this week and the next couple weeks, Lord willing, we're going to get to consider the beauty and the power of the gospel against the, the backdrop of those who oppose it or want to change it. This morning, our sermon has two points, and providentially, I love when the Lord does these things, both of them have already been emphasized at various points of this service. Uh, the sermon points are evangelism and ecclesiology, two E's, ecclesiology, that's a, that's a big word, what's that mean? Anybody know what ecclesiology means? Dave Pyle, you should know, because we just talked about this the other day. What is it? Study of the church. I'm not, I didn't mean to put Dave on the spot. No, it's just, that wasn't nice. That wasn't nice. Uh, <laughs> it's, our, it's our study of the church, our doctrine of the church. In Acts chapter 14, we see Paul and Barnabas' commitment to the continual preaching of the gospel and the continual building of the church, continuing to do both of these things at great cost and at great potential danger to themselves. And when we read this chapter, it's going to be easy to get caught up in the miraculous works that we're going to see. And we're going to talk about them a little bit this morning, but I want us to keep our focus where Paul and Barnabas kept their focus, pointing people to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, urging them to believe in Him, and ensuring that the church is built up wherever they go. And we need to see what is most important as we share the gospel in a world that worships self as God. A world steeped in such spiritual blindness uh, that we double down on our denials in the face of massive evidence that there is a God who made us all to whom we must give account. A world that can celebrate thanksgiving without thanking 
the one who gave them everything they have. Do you ever think of the insanity of thanksgiving for a person who doesn't believe in God? Who are they thanking? I think you know. They're thanking themselves. They're gods. And that's us, apart from God's grace. We too are given to living for vanity instead of for the living God. We too can devalue the church, the bride of Christ, bought by His blood, against whom the gates of hell will not prevail. Is the church an accessory to our lives here for when we have nothing better to do, when our schedules are clear? Here we will see Paul and Barnabas risk their very lives for the building of the church and the proclamation of the gospel. So let's read Acts chapter 14. If you're using the Bibles that are in front of you, uh, it'll be page 923. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without witness. For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, 
strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, I have done much preparation and written many things down and uh, pray that you will make me faithful to your word. But we acknowledge together that apart from your spirit working, these words are meaningless. And so I pray, Father, that you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit, that my word would be clear, faithful to you, and that you would work in each of our hearts through this time. As Larry prayed earlier, we also pray for churches in our area and in our nation and in our world where now or or earlier or later the word of truth is going forth. Lord, bless the hearing of your word wherever it happens today. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul and Barnabas traveled about 90 miles east-southeast from Antioch of Pisidia to Iconium, which was in the province of Galatia. As usual, they went right into the synagogue, the place of learning for the Jewish people, and they shared the gospel. Luke says, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks, that word Greeks just means non-Jews, that both a, number, a number of both Jews and Greeks believed. They spoke in such a way that a number of both Jews and Greeks believed. What do you think that means, that they spoke in such a way? Does this mean that, that Paul and Barnabas made converts by smooth talk? Were they good salesmen, gospel salesmen? They said It was a convincing argument that they made, and so people believed. And I, I think here, you know, we're right... Do you have your Bibles open, by the way? I didn't ask you that, because you should. I think Luke is telling us more about the substance of the message than the style of the speakers when he says this, okay? Uh, They spoke in such a way that someone could hear and believe in the Lord Jesus unto salvation, right? It says, I'm looking here at verse, what is that? Verse 1. Spoke in such a way. Remember our two points. Evangelism, ecclesiology. We're talking evangelism right now. We need to consider this. As a church, do we speak in such a way that someone could come here and hear the words of life? Could they be confronted with their hopeless state apart from Christ and see the words of life offered to them. The Apostle Paul was speaking a message in such a way that someone could hear and believe because he was preaching 
the gospel. In our lives and relationships, do people have the opportunity to hear the gospel from us? Do we speak in such a way that someone could be saved? Again, it's not about style. It's about substance. What are the words that are coming from us in our relationships? What are the words that we as a church declare to one another? And in this world, are they words that one could hear and be saved? What is it to be saved? To be rescued from our hopeless estate apart from God's grace. A great number of Jews and Gentiles believed in Jesus because the Gospel was proclaimed. And as we have seen many times in the book of Acts, as the Gospel goes out, it's attested to by signs and wonders. Right? We see that right here in the beginning of the chapter. Signs and wonders. Uh, that's verse 3. God granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Why? So we can get, I said this in the beginning. We can get caught up in the signs and wonders part of everything. There's you know, three pretty miraculous things that happen in this particular chapter. Uh, and it's easy to get caught up in the miraculous stuff, but forget that the signs and wonders, wonders are meant to be a pointer to the truthfulness of the gospel message. Always meant to be pointers to the truthfulness of the gospel. Salvation from illness, salvation from being crippled, they're meant to point people to their need for a greater salvation. If you become unsick in this life but still stand to perish in the next life what did that profit you while signs and wonders are being done and many are coming to faith in christ at the same time same message unbelieving jews are stirring the people up against paul and barnabas Larry talked about this a little bit last week. It's, it's, this is the nature of the gospel message. We see it repeatedly in Scripture. It is the power of God for salvation, and it's the aroma of death. Same message. Same message. And so some, they come and they stir the people up. They probably followed Paul and Barnabas. They were probably thorns in Paul and Barnabas' side. Kind of like what Paul was. Paul is experiencing something similar to what he was dishing out before the Lord graciously rescued him. These people are following. Jesus told Ananias in Acts chapter 9, He said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And the Jewish unbelievers poisoned the minds of the people against them. How did they do this? What's, what's it mean that they poisoned the minds of the people against them? Maybe personal attacks. Maybe Paul talks about it in some of his epistles where one of the accusations against him was that he was bold when he wasn't around, but then he got there and he was real meek. Maybe he wasn't as good a speaker. Maybe he wasn't demanding money from those who he shared the gospel with. They were attacking his authenticity. They were attacking the truthfulness of the message. They were poisoning the minds of the people. But did you notice it says they poisoned the minds of the people against 
Paul and Barnabas. And then do you know what the next word is? If you have your Bibles open, I bet you do. So, which is not the word I would have chosen. If you were writing this passage, you would have probably said, but. But instead it says, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness. So, Luke seems to be saying that they stayed because there was opposition. Because they cared about the disciples who remained there, that they would be protected from false teachers. Because they wanted to see that church build up. Because opposition does not mean we should stop. Listen, I love comfort. I'm a a comfort-aholic. And so the moment opposition comes my way, my natural inclination, every natural inclination of my body is to say like, all right, good, we're good. I, yeah, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And there does come a time, Larry talked about it last week, shaking the dust off of our feet. There does come a time where we say, I've tried, I've shared, I don't know what else I can do. But opposition to the gospel message does not mean that we should just say like, oh, I guess we shouldn't share that anymore. It doesn't mean necessarily, I guess we should get out of here. Could you imagine if gospel witnesses left every place in the world right now where there was hostility toward the gospel? And we're called to the same. Opposition doesn't mean failure. Pushback does not mean we should give up. With that said, there is wisdom too. And we see that that they became aware of a plot to kill them. And they escaped. It doesn't mean that if if you're in danger and you have an opportunity to not be killed, that you're an unfaithful Christian. We see here that they, they left. And they went to the province of Lyconia, the cities of Lystra and Derbe, about 18 and 70 miles from Iconium, respectively. And what do they do when they get to these places? You'll never guess. They preach the gospel. They preach the gospel. That's what they do. That's probably why Larry gave this sermon the title, Just Keep Preaching. Is that right? Yeah. Paul is speaking in Lystra, and this man is is sitting there, and he's listening intently to Paul. This is a man who has never walked in his life. And Luke records that Paul saw that he had faith to be made well. What does that mean? You see, like, was there like a halo above his head? Like, this guy's got... It could just as easily be interpreted that this man had faith to be saved, to be rescued. He was listening intently. He was in. He was locked in on the message. And, and Paul notices that he has faith to be made well, maybe to be made well spiritually. And Paul says to him, you know, it it's the, could be the cruelest thing that a person would ever say to a crippled man. Get up and walk. Except our God is mighty. And it says, get up and walk. And it says that this man leapt up. He jumped up. Can you imagine being in that room? Or that place? That probably wasn't a room. Big open air. You knew this guy. 
He's been in your town all your life. He laid there. Today he walked. Today he walked. And this is what the gospel does in the hearts of people. Darkness to light. Death to life. Heart of stone to heart of flesh. No gospel, no new life. The message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The people of Lystra are amazed by this, and they shout out in Lyconian, it says. We have anybody who knows Lyconian in the room? Why does it say they, they say this in Lyconian? I think it's probably said so that we understand Paul and Barnabas might not have originally understood what they were saying. This would be a dialect, a local dialect that they would have been shouting in. And they're shouting out what? These go the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they're saying, look, it's, it's Zeus and Hermes. These people were immersed in Greek mythology. Which probably explains why Paul takes a different approach here in his evangelism, which we'll see it again in Acts chapter 17, than he would if it was a solely Jewish audience. In the Jewish audience, he would have appealed over and over to the Old Testament, proving that Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament. But to this particular crowd, that would have meant nothing to them. And so as they worship or begin to worship Paul and Barnabas, thinking they were, they were getting a visit from their gods. Note the difference in reaction between Paul and Barnabas here and Herod in chapter 12, right? A few weeks ago, we had Herod, and the people were just, they were saying this, they probably didn't even believe it, right? They were trying to flatter this guy. The voice of a god and not a man. The voice of a god and not a man. And what happened to Herod? I will not go into Larry's description of exactly what happened to, to Herod, but he, he was eaten by worms and then he died. Correct order of events. Eaten by worms and died. But here, Paul and Barnabas are, are seeing, wait, these people are starting to worship us. And they tear their garments. They tear their garments because that's what people do when they believe blasphemy is occurring. They tear their garments, and Paul stops them, right? What are you doing? We're men like you. We're not meant to be glory receptacles. When we accept praise and glory that belongs to God alone, we are not far from blasphemy. There's a way to humbly receive thanksgiving and, and you know, at, you know, people thanking us for something we do and glorify God in that. But when credit goes to us for something that God did, we are in danger. When a church says, look what, look what we did. Look how many salvations we tallied this year. Look how great we are. Look out. All glory and praise and honor belong to the Lord alone for His work. And Paul and Barnabas quickly correct these people. They say, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you what? 
good news. We have good news for you. Now remember, they just healed this crippled man. They have a captive audience for now. They're like, all right, I don't know what just happened here, but we're going to listen to you for a little while. And so they tell the people of Lystra that the healing power did not come from them, but they have good news. What is the content of this good news? That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. These vain things, Jeff captured it well in his prayer, vain things, temporary things, fleeting things, things that we ought not put our hope in. Paul and Barnabas are saying, these vain, what are they saying are the vain things? Your gods are vain things, citizens of Lyconia. Your gods are vain things. They're non-existent things. And I have really good news for you, citizens of Lyconia. You've been hoping in vanity. You're going to die, and you know what your gods are going to do for you? Nothing. But I've got good news. Because the living God did this. The living God did this. If people are generally receptive to, or at least tolerant of, churchy type stuff, right? I mean, this time of year, maybe especially, like everyone wants to get out for their Christmas visit to church. But hey, we're, we're not exempt from this, what I'm about to say. People are tolerant to churchy stuff until you press on their functional gods. A great way for churches to make lots of friends in the community is to not preach the full gospel is to not speak of the, the holiness of God, the law of God and its demands, to hide the parts about God that, that, that confront people's idolatry. Because the good news is good because the bad news is so bad, right? What makes the good news is good? Yeah, sorry. Too many cups of coffee this morning. What makes the good news good is how bad the news is before we receive the good news. And the reason the Jews hate Paul is because he's a threat to their love of power, their functional God. The reason this crowd is going to be so quickly turned against Paul is because they don't really want to leave their functional gods. They don't want to leave their idolatry. And neither do we. We love the pursuit of vanity. We spend 99.9999% of our time trying to hang on to that which is going to quickly pass away with very little thought of what is yet to come. We love to make gods in our own image. We are tempted to worship at the altar of success or money or family or pleasure or comfort. And when those gods get threatened, you, you learn what a person is tempted to idolize when it gets threatened, right? You know this, right? You probably know this in your own life. When you start to push on, on the, the thing that they value most, it's when idolatry is exposed in us. And we might say that we worship the true God, but when His power threatens our real gods, 
we choose to keep worshiping them over Him, apart from His grace. When the living God threatens our made-up gods, we choose the made-up ones. Why is that? Well, because ultimately, people like to worship themselves. All of our made-up gods are just some version of ourself that we worship, right? We, read, we could read in the prophets and like the, the folly of idolatry, right? Like these people chop down a tree, they burn half the tree, and they worship the other half of the tree. Our idolatry is no less ridiculous. We might not have idols in our home that we bow down to, but we, we set ourselves up as God. And that's crazy. That's crazy. We can read this passage and say it's crazy that these people wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas and not hear about the living God. Paul tells these people there's one living God. I have good news for you, idol worshipers. There is one living God, and that God healed this man. That God, even though previous generations have walked in their own ways, did good to you by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist." From the time we were kicked out of the garden, people have rejected the living God to make gods of their own creation. Maybe that's you today. And here you are, still walking God's earth, still breathing God's air, still enjoying God's blessings in spite of the fact that you give Him zero praise. You take praise from Him. And He still lets you walk His earth. And He still lets you breathe His air. And He still showers you with tons of blessings. That is a great mercy. And He calls you to turn from these vain things. Stop worshiping yourself. Stop your sinful pursuits and turn to Him. Turning to Him means acknowledging your wicked idolatry. Right? What would it look like for the people of Lyconia? It would have been, hey, stop worshiping these fake gods and worship the one who healed this guy. Repent of your idolatry. See that you are hopeless apart from the mercy of God. And how can we experience the mercy of God when all we deserve is wrath? Well, that same God who loves His enemies such that He sends His rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, that God loved His enemies even more than that. He loved His enemies so much that He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to earth to take on flesh. 
It's the beauty of the Advent season. We are reminded that he came here. He came here to live a life of perfectly pleasing worship of the Father. A life without spot or blemish. And then while we were his enemies, Jesus Christ died for us to reconcile us to God. To pay for our sins. To pay for our idolatry. He died because sin must be punished by a holy God and because that holy God was willing to have his son bear our punishment if we believe. And all who believe will be saved by him from these vain things unto eternal life because Jesus himself was raised from the dead and now ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the ever-living one. That is the good news that Paul and Barnabas brought. And many were healed and saved, and yet at the same time, many turned on them. We saw in verse 19 that the Jews kept following Paul and Barnabas. They stirred up this same crowd that was about to worship them. The same crowd. Does this sound familiar? Same group of people. One day giving praise, the next day ready to kill you. Happened to the Savior. He said, He said, they're going to do it to me, they'll do it to you. Same crowd stirred him up to stone him. To stone him. We cannot control people's reactions to the gospel, we must keep preaching it. Whatever it's cost. And I didn't say this a few minutes ago, and I'm going to say it now. Paul and Barnabas did not pander to their gods, right? Paul and Barnabas didn't say like, oh, they'll come to the understanding that, that Zeus and Hermes aren't real gods. They'll, they're baby Christians right now. They can keep worshiping what they worship, but eventually they'll understand. No, they did not pander to the gods of the people around them. And we have the same calling in our ministry. We do not pander to the gods of this world. And that probably is going to mean, even in our own community, that at times people are going to consider us hateful. People might put a sign up at their church that takes aim at churches that are faithful to the gospel. Maybe in this town. But we are for everyone because we do not hold back the truth of the gospel. We do not hold back the truth of God's word. I felt like that needed to be said. It's just I pass that sign every day and I think and believe that, that certain people think they are being loving by pandering to the gods of this age. And they are not. If Paul and Barnabas left Lyconia and said like, hey, listen, just keep on with Zeus and Hermes. That's fine. But we're just going to leave you some info here about like, you're, you know, whatever you like, we like. They didn't do that. 
Because the living God is the only hope of the world. The truth of God is the only hope of the world. And we see in the law of God and against the backdrop of the holiness of God how needy and how far short we fall. And then we get to hear good news. For those who fall short, we have a God who sent His Son who did not fall short, but died for us all, that His perfect life and His sacrificial death would be counted on our behalf. That's an amazing truth. But if people never are confronted with their need, they're not going to see the good news as good news. Sorry. So, let's go back to uh, verse 19. They, they stone Paul, right? And they, this is a crazy story. Kids, have you read this story before? They stone Paul. They, being stoned, by the way, is that like they got like a, a bunch of pebbles and they like fired them at Paul's you know, nose and they were bouncing off? No. No, they, they were killing him with stones, large stones. Stones like he approved people hitting Stephen with not that long ago, a few years before. Paul's stoned and he's dragged out of the city. They think he's dead. He's not dead. It says the disciples gather around him. It doesn't say that he was dead and he got raised. He just wasn't dead. They thought he was dead. He wasn't. And what does he do when he gets up? What does Paul do when he gets up? He goes back to the same place. Can you imagine what kind of shape Paul was in? If anybody would like to volunteer to be a visual portrayal, right? You know? If you got stoned and survived, you weren't looking great or feeling great. Paul would later say to the Galatian churches, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And he meant it. They had probably literally seen those marks. Then he goes right back into Lystra. And after that, they move on, bringing the gospel to Derby as well. And the gospel bears fruit and disciples are made. The mission continues. And even though it bears various reactions, even though it may be costly, even though it requires godly courage and boldness, the proclamation of the gospel also turns idol worshipers into children of the living God through the mercy of the Lord Jesus. That was point one. <laughs> I texted Larry yesterday and said, my sermon is going to be 900 hours long. It's not. Point two will not be as long. But what do Paul and Barnabas, point two is ecclesiology, our, our doctrine of the church. What do Paul and Barnabas do after they're in Derby? Before they return to their home base of Antioch, they go back to all the places they had previously been. Why? Was it on their way back? The answer to that is no. If you look in the maps, you don't have to do this now, but, but a lot of your Bibles probably have maps in the back of them, you will see that they had to go out of their way to get from Derby to Ant the, their Antioch, to go back. They were backtracking in a lot of ways. So did they go back 
uh, because everybody in those cities loved them? No. They were going back into hostile territory. The reason they went back is because Jesus didn't ordain His people to preach the gospel and save souls and then leave them to their own devices. Jesus has always been about the work of building His church. Paul and Barnabas went back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Antioch of Pisidia to ensure that the church was built and strengthened. We rejoice in the sovereignty of God. We're blessed to remember that God will keep those who are His sheep safe until the end. Paul knew that. Paul embraced that. Why didn't he just go back to Antioch and say, hey, whatever's going to be is going to be? Because God sovereignly ordained means for the care and protection of His sheep. If a person says they love Jesus, but they hate the church, that's not possible. If a person says they do not need the local church, they're wrong. If a ministry is concerned with soul winning, but not the local church, it's insufficient. That includes foreign missions. If someone goes to the mission field with the idea of making lots of converts and then leaving them to their own devices, something is lacking. Paul and Barnabas are about to put their lives on the line again. We have a concept. They put their lives on the line to preach the gospel to those who have never heard. They're about to put their lives on the line again to make sure that the church is built up. They're willing to do that as well. They do it for the good of these infant churches. They go back to the hard places to see the church strengthened. So what do we see of their labors in these verses? Five brief things that we see. They could be combined too, but I, I just broke them into five. They strengthened the soul. We're looking at uh, verse 22 here. They strengthened the souls of the disciples. Note that Luke says they strengthened the souls of the disciples. How did they do this? Undoubtedly, this involved teaching and preaching the Word. Teaching what the Christian life is to look like and teaching the people that our hope is in Christ alone. We must go nowhere else and then teaching them to teach others. This is the work of the church to build up its people in the Gospel. We as leaders are called to model this, but the work of strengthening involves us all, and it's a, it's a good word. It, we could even consider all these things as church members. Hey, how am I doing in this area? Is my soul being strengthened? Am I helping to strengthen the souls of others in the Lord? They encourage them to continue in the faith. Paul says in, in 1 Timothy, or sorry, 2 Timothy 1.12, I am not ashamed... For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He is convinced that the living God is able to guard the message and guard Him. They went back to encourage these people in the faith. Everything we have is by grace through faith. Continuing in the faith may seem really hard. I mean, when they left these places... They left them to whoever was there still ready to oppose that message. 
Continuing in the faith may seem hard or useless or impossible at times. But we must never believe the lie that the vanity we left behind is better than the hope we have in Christ. No matter what. No matter what is in front of us. If you find yourselves in that spot today where maybe you are feeling, I can't, I don't have the strength to go on anymore. Don't leave here without talking to somebody. That's what we do. We encourage one another in the faith. We build one another up in the faith. Paul and Barnabas told them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, right? Hope in Christ and salvation in Christ do not mean smooth sailing in this world. Don't give up because it's difficult. Jesus told us it was going to be this way. I mean, this guy who was crippled. Think about this guy who was crippled, right? Best day of your life. Never walked walking. Paul's coming back to your town. He's got a message for you. Hey, listen, I know you can walk now. It might get worse for you. Life might get harder because you believe in Jesus. Don't be surprised by that, right? Don't be surprised. Peter says it in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, he says. We don't need to seek out hatred. We don't need to be nasty people so that people will react to it. We don't need to do any of that. We just need to be faithful and be reminded that the gospel may mean hardship for us as well. They also, Paul and Barnabas, appointed elders in every church. We will see Paul's pastoral heart further in Acts chapter 20. But it is a good thing for a local church to have elders. Self-serving for me to say this, but it's true. It's, it's, it is a plurality of elders. And what is the role of elders in a church? The elders are called to feed and protect the flock. Teach and preach the Word of God. Be devoted in prayer. Train and strengthen. Watch out for wolves in the midst and on the outside. There is goodness in godly leadership. Paul and Barnabas didn't, didn't leave there and say, well, you know, good luck, figure it out. They appointed people to lead them, to protect them, to teach them the truth of the Word. We see that we are called as a congregation. Our members have the responsibility to affirm and appoint godly leaders over us and then to submit to those leaders who, you pray, make it a joy to submit because we have your best interests in mind, your growth in godliness in mind. We are, to be clear, imperfect under-shepherds. But godly leadership is a blessing to a local congregation. And Paul and Barnabas made sure that it was in place before they left. 
They also committed those leaders to the Lord with prayer and fasting. Just as Paul and Barnabas were set aside after a period of prayer and fasting in Antioch, here they model a special setting aside of these elders through prayer and fasting. And this is poignant because Paul and Barnabas, at best, will not see these brothers and sisters for a long time. And at worst, now we we know from the rest of Acts that Paul's going to get back there, but at worst, they may never see these people face to face again. And so they want the church well provided for and well cared for. That's our goal too. I might not live to tomorrow. Is the church well cared for, well provided for? Are there leaders in place who will protect and teach and serve and pray? Paul and Barnabas' work of installing elders is ultimately a statement, as it says here in the end of verse 23, that they were committing them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We've done what we can do. Lord, this is all in your hands ultimately. We are entrusting these churches to you, which is a great place for us to stop this morning. The Lord gives his people a message, the gospel, and a means of protection, the church. Through these, we are reminded that everything we have and all we are, all that we do and all that we will be comes from Him and Him alone. Do you love His message and His people? Praise God that we are kept safe by the Lord Jesus who loved the message and loved the people so much that He laid down His life for them. He is the living God and the eternal King. To Him be glory in His church and in an all-gospel proclamation, now and forevermore. Amen. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for you are the living God. All other gods are of our own creation, but you are the eternal and living God. And I pray, Father, that you would remind us today of your great goodness to us in the Lord Jesus. I pray for those who have been worshiping other gods of their own making, Lord, that they would see the folly, see how you have been so gracious to them, to continue to provide for them, that they would see their need and that they would find hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for those who believe. Help us to be faithful ministers of your gospel, Lord, and help us to love your bride, the church which you bought with your blood. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.